Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Um, I wasn't supposed to preach. Bill uh, pulled the sick card on me, even though I got sick yesterday. I got sick yesterday, so um, I gave all these disclaimers about this being a horrible sermon. I'm not gonna do that this time. It probably will be okay. Uh, I call it a base hit. So bear with me. Come another time, um, and you'll enjoy <laughs> Just kidding. Hey, so we're in a series called Real Jesus. We're looking at the life. What am I doing right now? We're looking at the life, (laughs) ministry, mission, and message of Jesus and talking about how his life, message, and mission shapes our life today. Um, So we talked about his message a bit, and then last week we started a new section of the series where we're looking at parables. How do the stories of, of Jesus shape the way we live today? Last week we talked about the Good Samaritan um, and kind of, for many of you, kind of changed your perspective on what the moral of the story is. Um, so we're gonna do another one, and this is truly what theologians call the hardest parable. And I wish I had another week to kind of work on it, but I didn't. So this is on the shrewd manager. So if you have a Bible, go to Luke. Luke. <laughs> Who's got their tickets? Just throw it up. Come on, let me see. Yeah, okay, all right. Did you guys see the super trailer? Come on, are you kidding? And if you don't know what I'm talking about, it's for those that have ears to hear, all right? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I'm talking about Star Wars, okay? You can get excited about Star Wars here. Okay, um, so turn to Luke 16. We're gonna talk about uh, this very interesting uh, sermon or parable that Jesus gives. But before that, let's talk about math. I hate math. I hated math growing up. It was my worst subject. It was just so ridiculous. Anyone else hate math here? Let's just say amen. You're in a safe place. Um, who, love, who are the ones that love math? Let me just see. Okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, I hated word problems. Anyone else? Not a big fan of the word problems. Like they give you this random story that forces you to take a particular theory and apply it to a situation that approximates some type of reality that you'll never, ever, ever experience in your life. So to test our math skills this morning, I want each section, the middle, the left, and the right. Let's all pick uh, someone to represent us. So who here is great at math that wants to, to do two word problems? So we have two word problems. We're gonna test our skills. Okay, yeah, we got, okay, we got one over here. Who's gonna be designated in this section? Who's good at math? We need, come on, guys. This is an opportunity to shine. Okay, we got someone in the back. All right, you know what? We'll just do it in sections. Just shout. The, the section to get the answer right first wins all of the glory in eternal dwelling places set apart before the Father. Um, <laughs> All right, so get ready. I'm going to read the question, and whoever answers it first in the section, you win uh, eternal dwelling places. Okay, so um, a car. Here's question number one. A car traveled 281 miles in four hours and 41 minutes. What was the average speed of the car in miles per hour? Sixty. This section over here is right. Sixty miles per hour. The highly favored section. Okay, one more. One more. Oh, okay. This one's a little more complex, okay? And you will definitely, if you haven't already thought about this question, I promise you, at some point in your life, I'm older than most of you, 31, 
At some point, you will have to endure um, and answer this question. You will be faced with the challenge. Two cyclists start, out, start at the same time from the opposite ends of a course that is 45 miles long. One cyclist is riding at 14 miles per hour, and the second is riding at 16 miles per hour. How long after they begin will they meet? Hour and a half, the section's right again! Whoa! I'm a little embarrassed for these sections over here. <laughs> wow, so you guys definitely win. No competition there. Um, in fact, if you guys want to leave, just go and free yourself from this hard teaching. So, hey, so parables. Parables are designed to provoke a response from the listener. Jesus didn't just teach about information. He gave word problems. He gave um, stories that would just force the listener to decide on a direction to go in view of the story. They would have to determine what character they were. And in response to the story, live differently. The parables are word problems of philosophy, religion, and ethics. And they spend all their time teaching calculations, and then out of the blue, they bring the story, and it's right there, and you have to decide. You see, the point of a parable is this. It's not to tell you about the world. It's to transform how you interact in the world. As we look at the parables moving forward, Jesus isn't telling us something about the world. He's teaching us how to be transformed and interact differently in the world that we live in. So it's designed to restructure the way you think, to reorient, to shake up your uh, perspective and give you a new way to interact in the world. The parable is not written from, uh, it's not written about love, it's written from love. It's not written about sorrow, it's written from sorrow. Not about suffering, but from suffering. It's an invitation from a place to another place. Um, And it's for those that have ears to hear that find the deeper meaning and interact in the world differently. So that's the point of this parable. And this is quite a unique parable. And I want us to listen to it. I'm gonna basically read the story. I'm gonna talk about the characters and talk about context. And then I'm just gonna give you some observations because it is, it is a, it's really dense. And maybe we'll spend two weeks. I don't know. I have something else for next week. But um, let me just read this to you and we'll get in the same place from there. Are you guys with me? I know this section is, no question at all. Just kidding. Just kidding. You guys aren't left out. Luke, Luke 16, verses one through 13. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man who, whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their house. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked them the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. 
Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. He replied, he told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For people of this world, this is Jesus' commentary, are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves. So when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling world possession, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. What's going on in this story? It's a parable. It's taught in a way to help us understand how to interact in the world. And this is a particular teaching that, that many scholars wish wasn't in the scriptures. In fact, it's debated, but if you, it's in the Gospel of Luke, so we gotta deal with it, and Jesus did teach it. And what's fascinating is it's the dishonest manager that is the hero of the story. So what does that teach us about what it means to be followers of Jesus and how do we interact with it? How do we interact in this world? So let's put on our first century thinking caps. Let's think about what's being told and why it's being told and then we'll land on some observations and implications for our lives. So let's dig in. So first of all, there are three characters really in the story. There's the manager, the master, or the the rich man who owns the land. And then there are the debtors or debtor. And so what we have is the, we'll start with the manager. A manager in the first century context was a member of the household, so he worked for the master. He would be like a power of attorney for the master. So he would deal, if you dealt with him, it was like dealing with the landowner or the rich man himself. He had that power. It was a position of great trust, and the job or the point was to use the owner's stuff in a way that would benefit the owner because it's actually his. That's what the job entailed. And in context, we're talking about small cities and communities. So people in, in, in this context that would hear this story, they would have known people like this, they would have known managers, they would have had a relationship with them because most of them were renting or borrowing property from rich people. And it was a small town, so there's a communal feel and a communal context, which we don't really have because we don't even know who our, our landlords are. We don't have context like this. So stay with me. So the manager is caught using the master's possessions for his own purposes and gain. And so he doesn't defend himself, um, but it's not a, you're not doing your job, it's that you were looking out for your own interests, not for my interests. So he's caught in that moment, okay? And so how it worked in the first century in this situation is like this. Uh, A manager would receive a fee for their services that they kind of they worked between like a middle manager between those that rented from a master and the master himself. So the manager would get a fee for every person that rented from the master. And around various harvest times or certain parts of the year, um, the manager would get kind of a bonus or get some, some tips on top of that. And a bill that was written between a master and a debtor was public knowledge. So the whole community knew what was owed. 
It wasn't a surprise. So what would happen is uh, a debtor or a, a renter would come and want to rent a piece of property. This is what's most likely going on. And the, they would go to the manager who represented the master and they would negotiate a price. And that price wasn't due up front. The price was due after the harvest because we're talking about goods being sold. So we see wheat was negotiated for this p- piece of land and olive oil for the other piece of land. So that's what it looked like in the first century. So the whole community knew how much was owed and the manager was the legal agent and authority acting on behalf of the master. The the manager has a salary. He's paid by the master to do this job of kind of managing the properties. Are you with me? We're familiar with this. We got it. The debtors um, rented land and produced a, a harvest and they would give that to the owner once a year after the harvest. So the manager's silence on the fact that he's brought, um, the, the master brought this accusation reveals that he was guilty. And so what was expected in a rabbinic kind of parable like this is the first century listener would have expected a, a, some type of story where the manager would have all these excuses of why he's innocent why he was innocent, what he, you know, he would blame somebody else. And there were similar, similar parables around Jesus' time that would share a different kind of ending to the story. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus actually focuses on the future. He focuses on what this manager does instantly and uses that as the moral of the story. Are you with me? So, so three of us are with me. Obviously, this section's still with me, but we're gonna keep going. Um, the point then, so from the beginning, we have to get, is the manager was fired on the spot, but his dismissal was not public knowledge. So we had an, a, a, a moment to act, a decisive moment to act, a window of opportunity, the time between he was formally dismissed and the time between people hear about his firing. So he has this short window to act, and preserve his future. And what it says is this, verse three, the manager said to himself, what shall I do? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their home. So he creates a plan. He schemes up this idea where he's gonna make sure that people will welcome him into his home. But what you need to know about this what's kind of alluded to in the story is something about the master's generosity. Because according to oral tradition, the manager should have been jailed for the mismanagement of his master's property. So what was part of the oral tradition is if you mismanaged somebody's property, you had to make restitution and you would be jailed and tried in court for that amount. So the master doesn't do this. So we already see kind of hinted in the story um, the scheme, the plan that the manager has is relying on the generosity of his master. Are you with me? Okay, so here we go. The manager creates a situation that will change his public image. So he risks everything on the mercy of the master and he begins to make his move. And the key to this plan is that nobody knows that he's fired and that he uh, calls them one by one. He doesn't have them talking to each other. And he begins to work through his issue. So he tells the debtors, um, they're led to believe that as the manager, he still has authority to make these moves. Now stay with me. I promise this will all make sense. Um, so he, 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 he begins to invite them one-on-one. And what he does is he's, he pretends to act on behalf 
of the master and what it seems like is that he's telling the debtors that he as the manager negotiated a new price. It makes him look better so that this is seen as a generous act from the master but it had something to do with the manager so when they find out he's dismissed or fired, they will, they will rejoice because he was a good guy and eventually he'll be welcomed into their home and he'll have another job after this. That's kind of the implication. So that's what he's doing. He's scheming his way. The debtors believe that he has has the authority to make these cuts. He takes credit for it. He takes credit for the reduction, even though, and they are legitimate reductions because nobody knows he doesn't act on behalf of the master. So that's the story in the first century context. Now, the master then quickly in Jesus' parable just responds. And this is what's crazy. There are two ways for the master to respond. First, he could say, this was not fair. This was not right. Um, He did this outside of my authority. I had fired him. And actually, you owe what you originally owed. But at this point in the story, the villagers would have seen the master as generous. They would have seen him as someone who was a great man to deal with that they would rent it from. And so for him to go back on his word because the manager represented him, it would be seen as him being stingy. And the village would have been upset because it would have been a small community that would have been talking about it. Or he could remain silent and allow the manager to do what he did and be praised. The manager would be praised, and as a result, the master would be praised. So what does the master do? The master simply says this in verse eight. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. This is like out of the blue. This doesn't make sense. It wouldn't, this wouldn't be a story that you would tell as a happy ending in the first century. It's, it's a dishonest steward. He's acting dishonestly. And then it says, for, Jesus makes a commentary, and I, this is where it gets serious. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. So the people of the world that don't know Jesus, that don't know God, are better at making situations work out for themselves than the people of the light, the Christians, the followers of Jesus, than working in a way like the manager. This is interesting. And this is why, why uh, uh, theologians hate it because they don't fully grasp what's going on here. They're, they're, it could be confusing what he's trying to say. And to have the manager as the hero, a dishonest hero in the Middle East, this would have made all the peasants happy because they didn't trust the, uh, the rich, rich community. They didn't trust the wealthy. And 90% were living in poverty in first century. So this is a rabbinic principle, okay? So what we have to grasp is what is going on. So Jesus now compares his followers to those of the world. And it's a rabbinic tradition called from the light to the heavy. And he'll always say how much more. So you read about uh, in Luke, he'll say, uh, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly father give good gifts to those who ask? You've heard this story before? Or he says to the widow, if the widow gets the outcome she wants from an unjust judge, how much more it's, uh, will, will God give you what you desire? So it's this, this from the light to the heavy. The heavy is the greater truth. And so Jesus is teaching this greater truth. And the steward in this story is praised for his wisdom, his skillfulness, and his self-preservation. He was aware of the hopelessness of the situation. He acted quickly. He counted on the generosity of his master. And the moral of the story is the manager was shrewd, period. The manager used his skill and his wisdom and his talents and his expertise to secure 
his future well-being based on the outcome. It would be like an IRS agent being uh, told they were, they were gonna be fired and laid off and they mailed 20 of their good friends undeserved tax, cut che- uh, tax refund checks. Just be like that. Or a hospital administrator who was told they're gonna have to le- leave their job and they reduced the bills of several prominent patients by several thousands of dollars. That's what the story looks like in our context. Now, Jesus doesn't tell the story as a model of honesty. He tells the story as a model of being cunning, recognizing the window of opportunity, being absolutely free to do what you can to work the system for the benefit of the kingdom of God. Now stay with me because this is where it gets really serious. So the point is the manager was shrewd. The word shrewd is to be cunning, strategic, opportunistic, or ambitious. And practical, practical common sense is to work something out for your own advantage. Matthew 10, 16 says, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Romans 16, 19 says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. Jesus goes on to say, and he, he makes the point of what he's actually talking about to his followers. And stay with me because this is so important. I'm gonna come closer with this. <laughs> What's so important is that we have to recognize what the moral of the story is and what the implications are for us. Because then he makes this commentary to his followers. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Whoever can be trusted with very little can be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling world wealth, the light, who will trust you with true riches, the heavy? And if you haven't been trustworthy with someone else's property here on earth in our current lifetime, the light, who will give you property of your own? Jesus is essentially saying, isn't it interesting that the people of the world seem way more free to live in such a way that have bad ends and bad means? They think more strategically about money. They think more strategically about their future. They think more strategically and ambitiously about outcomes than the people of God, as people of God, we are more hesitant to even be shrewd or ambitious for God because we think it's a negative characteristic. And Jesus is saying, I want my followers to be that strategic, that ambitious for the kingdom. I want you to have an imagination that works in a window of opportunity to do everything you can for furthering this great mission of God. That's the call. Be shrewd like that in your ordinary life. Jesus is not praising the man's goal of looking out for himself, but he's, he's talking about a cleverness and intelligence of, of not being bound by a lack of imagination, of by not being bound by what he doesn't have, but having complete freedom and, and uh, being grounded in what he does have. He was a manager. He did exactly what he was supposed to do for his own means. Jesus is saying, in other words, as followers, what is the moral of the story? We must learn how to be fully ourselves and use everything we have at our fingertips, our wealth, our money, our relationships, uh, our, our intellect, our knowledge, our stuff in such a way that moves this kingdom forward in a strategic, ambitious way. This is what we're called to. As followers of Jesus, to become shrewd managers, he's giving us a word problem. So a couple of thoughts, a couple of implications, seven more minutes or so, and we'll close this up. You with me? Okay, point number one. What does this story teach us about life? Number one, we are all managers. 
We are all managers and it's not our stuff. We are all managers and it's not our stuff. First Corinthians 6, 19 says, not even our bodies belong to us. In other words, I want you to sit for a second and think about everything you have. What you're wearing, what you have at home, if you have a home, if you have a car, Think about all the resources in your life, the materials that you have. Think about what you have in the bank account. Now I want you to think about experiences you've been given. College, education. Think about the people that you know and have access to through them, social capital. You know people that have access to other things. You know people that can help you when you have plumbing problems. You know people, you have access to pay for a plumber. I want you to think about, uh, some of you have have greater influence. People listen to your voice. I want you to think about every capital that you've been given, social capital, physical capital, intellectual capital, spiritual capital, financial capital. And when you think about that, what Jesus is saying is very, very simple. None of that is yours. You are called to steward it on behalf of God. That's what the story is telling you. You are a manager, a shrewd manager. This is the point uh, This is point number one, to be the kind of person that recognizes nothing is yours and it's all his. And as Christians, we don't get the privilege of serving God and money or God and stuff. Are you with me? All right, stay here for one second. Some of you are saying, okay, I don't have that much stuff. I don't have a lot of money. I just want to give you some perspective and hopefully this helps you. Point, uh, if you make $25,000 or more, you make more than 90% of the world as a household. If you make more than... $25,000, $25,000, you make more than 90% of the world. If you make more than $50,000, if you make $50,000 as a whole household, you are in the top 1% of the world's wealthiest people in the world. Okay? So we talk about the wealthy and the rich. If we make $50,000 or more, you're in the 1% of the world's wealthiest people in the entire globe. That's 7 billion plus people. 93% of the world's population, 93% do not own a car. If you own a car, you are in the top 7% because of that car. If you have access to a car, that's an even greater number. Anyone own a computer here? Can we just, let's raise our hands. All of us, raise your hands if you own a computer. 1% of the entire globe's population own a computer. All right, let's just do one more thing. Raise your hand if you have a college education or getting a college education. Raise your hand. Look look around. There's 1% of the world has a college education. Now, I give those statistics not to shame. I give those statistics to give us perspective. Because if we've been given much, what's expected of us? Will we be trustworthy? Will we, will we manage what is not rightfully ours, but rightfully his? Well, point number two, we all have a window of opportunity. Scripture talks about our life on earth as vapor, dust, mist. It's gone in the blink of an eye. Nothing compares to the length of our life as eternity. So we are living in a short window of time. And this story teaches us that we must learn to invest our lives now in the kingdom. The things that will last for eternal dwellings, in other words. We are to live now. I say this, to live now, here and now, in such a way that when we die, when Jesus comes back, we'll just keep living with the same characteristics, the same hopes, the same dreams, the same peace, the same love, the same justice, the way God intended us to live in the first place. That is the invitation. So that means we must learn how to invest our lives in the things that matter 
most, relationships, being generous. If, you are in, uh, if you're thinking, oh, I'll be generous when I make more money. Generosity doesn't happen in your life when you have more. You learn how to be generous when you don't have enough. People, you know, I talk to college students all the time. Oh, I'll give eventually when I make enough money. If you don't know the principle of giving now, you won't, I guarantee, when you have more. Guess what happens? Your life accumulates. You'll, you'll buy more expensive stuff. You'll have more needs. You'll desire the bigger, better car, the cooler shoes, or whatever it is. You will, your, your preferences grow with the amount you make unless you decide to live the way Jesus intended you to live, that none of it's yours anyways. You with me? We have a window of opportunity. Now you know why I said you guys should leave, right? So <laughs> I love this. Okay, this is such a cool thing. So there's a group of people in our church um, uh, that are roommates, these ladies in our church in their 20s that are, are now safe families. They're a safe family host. What's safe family? So we partner with an organization called Safe Family. We welcome in, um, basically, we work with families that are at risk of losing their kids into the foster system. And we come alongside them by hosting their kids for a short period of time. So it could be a once a week. It could be three weeks at a time. Uh, it could be every Sunday for you know, a year. And Safe Families works with churches to provide what these families don't have. And that is a network of friendships, a community. And so what I love is that there are a group of women that have a house with an extra bedroom and they said, let's all be qualified to become Safe Families members so that we can host because we have an extra room. Yes, it's their, their young 20s and they're choosing to invest their life in things that will last for eternity. Do you see the power of that? And now let's just take that even further. Okay, some of you have extra cars. Some people don't have a car that's functioning for the family. Some of you have extra money. Some of us don't have enough to pay the bills. Some of you have uh, extra rooms. Some of you have extra homes. There are all sorts of ways we can look at this, the capital in our life. You know how to do things. And there are people that don't know how to do things here that need to know how to do things. And you can be connected in relationship to give everything you possibly have away because there is an opportune time. It's coming. And point number three, we will give an account for everything we have. 1 Corinthians 3, Revelation 20. I don't talk about this a lot here, but the Bible speaks of judgment. And I'm not talking about, you know, whether you're a Christian or not. It talks about judgment for those who are followers of Jesus. And I don't like to look at it as this negative thing. In fact, I don't even think it's going to be negative. I think what it's going to look like is something like this. God's going to say, Darren, amazing. Thank you. You did an incredible, good and faithful servant. I love you so much. You couldn't have done anything else. Look at all, look at all the stuff that you were a part of. This is a beautiful sanction. You did so many things. We, I love you and I'll give my praise back to him and then he'll, he'll basically go, you, you did this and like I had all of this for you but at times you were just focused on the little things. And, this is, and it's gonna be a celebration. It's gonna be good. But he's gonna, I think he'll reveal the world in front of us that we could have participated in and if our hearts and minds were open to the reality that he was resurrected from the dead and everything else has changed. But we're so focused on our retirement and our dreams and our family home and our everything else. And Jesus is saying the whole world is mine and I have so much more to give you. Don't put it in this little tiny thing. You with me? That's my picture of judgment. It might not be accurate. It could be speculative. Maybe you'll call me, call me a heretic, but that's it, okay? You'll be held accountable for everything you have. So what are you doing with what's been given to you? Are you trying to make your name great or his name great? This is what the shrewd manager is about. Not about being dishonest, about becoming shrewd, about becoming opportunistic, ambitious for the kingdom, being set free. And the ministry lie is 
This is where ministry happens. And let me just tell you, this is not where ministry is happening only. If you think that it's when you gather on Sunday or go to community group, that's a lie. And that's where I think the enemy wins by, not, by you not living in the identity that you are an ambassador. You are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are more than conquerors. You have been set free. You are missionaries with the mission field. Every single one of you that say yes to Jesus have been called into this epic story and you're supposed to live your life in that reality, bringing everything you have to the foot of Jesus and letting him fill you with things that you didn't even know were possible and building the kingdom as you go into your workplace, as you go to coffee shops, as you go into your neighborhoods, as you go back home. That's what it's designed to be, a minister, a missionary. You're released. And if the lie is, well, just come and give to the garden and sit in a seat and do the ministry thing as we do ministry time here. If that's what you see ministry as, you're missing the grand adventure of following Jesus with your whole life. So I'll close with this. What do we do with this sermon? Number one, be shrewd. Be ambitious for the kingdom. Build a beautiful future in the kingdom of God. Use everything you have, everything you know, every person you have. Don't use it for negative reasons. Use it to to further justice and joy and life and hope and peace and grace and beauty and art. Just canvas this whole place with your love for Jesus and let it flow out of you naturally, but be ambitious and steward that time. Steward your time. The second thing is to uh, be free with your stuff. Be free with everything you have. I, I share this story. Um, it's such a funny thing, but when I was, um, I, I, have you guys ever rented a car? So what's the difference between the car you own and a rental car? Well, you will take the corners way faster with an e-brake with a rental, am I right? You'll let the kids, let the kids do whatever they want back there. Here's some fries with chili on it. Go ahead, eat it up. It's not, it's a rental, right? You have more freedom, don't you? I mean, am I wrong with this? That's how I treat a rental. Maybe I shouldn't. (laughs) When you get the insurance, you don't care. You'll hit the bump. You don't care about alignment, right? It's because you're set free. It doesn't own you. You own it. How many of you are owned by your stuff? Be free with your stuff. Be free. There's a, and uh, someone told me this in the last service, that the end of Schindler's List. If you haven't seen the movie, it's an incredible movie about one man that works to free um, uh, Jewish people during the Holocaust and during World War II. He buys them. And I'm just gonna read this. When the war ends, Schindler tells his workers they are now free, but that he will be hunted as a war criminal and must flee at midnight. When he bids his his number two goodbye, they give him a ring made of a gold tooth from the factory workers and engraved with a Hebrew phrase that says, whoever saves one life saves the world entire. Schindler begins to break down and cry at the end of this movie because he could have sacrificed more. He begins to take off his watch and come to the stark realization after freeing all these people and saving thousands of lives, he begins to take off his watch, break down and realize there's so much more I could have done. And I pray that that's not the case for you when you are held accountable. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.